Today I'm talking to Lana Hall. Lana is a writer based in Toronto and a former news reporter. Her work focuses heavily on issues at the intersection of labor, equity, and life in urban centers. Her works appeared in the Globe and Mail, Spacing Magazine, and Catapult, to name a few. Currently, she's writing a memoir about her time working in Toronto's exotic massage parlor trade, which she did for about five years. This is my talk with Lana. What do you call it? Like a the falling action. Um, oh, I actually got it here. I got it. That is also kind of mimics like a traditional male orgasm. And funnily enough, that's also what we accept as being the true and the serious way to structure a book. Yeah. And then there are sort of these other structures that people sometimes employ that have maybe like smaller climaxes more frequently throughout the book and alternate yeah. structures like that which are taken less seriously and considered to be more like avant-garde and, um, and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, it is a little bit ironic that <laughs> those structures um, are not taken as seriously as, as what we think of as a normal climax. <laughs> so I, I think about that when I'm writing too, but I mean, that does seem to be what most publishers are looking for. So I, I don't know how much, I don't know how much freedom there really is with that. Yeah. I, I've gone through a bunch of, I feel like every chapter I'm, um, I'm almost making like mini discoveries. Mm. They're almost thematic in and of themselves. I have a chapter about, you know, my relationship with women, how skewed it was, and then weaving that through. And then I end the whole thing with, I was in Detroit and they had an exhibition on 17th century female feminist artists. And I'm like, Wait, there was feminist artists back in the 17th century. They had a portrait of Mary Magdalene, which has typically been portrayed as very rigid or slutty or just, you know, through them, always painted by a man. Mm -hmm. And this Italian feminist painter, I'll send you the picture. It's just gorgeous. And she's got a peasant blouse on and it's sort of off her shoulder. And she's leaning back and she's laughing. I'm like, what woman was laughing back then? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, you think we got it bad? We had a great time. <laughs> yeah. And I keep thinking every single thing we do, it's always looked through this male lens. Mm. And it's like, it's like a film that has been put on the stories. It's it's, it's our sexuality. It's how they, we tell a book. Mm. Um. It's constantly, and even when I'm like thinking of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to weave in my my sort of power on a bicycle because I feel like that's the thing that I had. I understood a bike. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand sexuality. Sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. A bike doesn't have a brain that you have to reckon with. No, no. And it was, it made me unique. It was my freedom. And the fact that I could kick other guys' asses on it, that made it feel even more empowering. So, um, but yeah, there was just, there wasn't a gender to a bike in a way. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. Yeah, no gender to a bike. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah. I'm going to write that down. And then I'm going to jump into the questions. Okay. This is a a profession that most mothers would not think of saying, hey, do you want to get into this? But you did. Uh, So 
tell us, you know, why you decided to get into the massage business and, and then how old you were sort of what, what was going on in your life around that time. And then that decision process. Yeah, that's a great question. And ironically, I feel like the way I got into this line of work is very much the way a lot of people in their early twenties get into certain jobs. So I would have been 21, 22, and I had taken a leave from um, what was then known as the Ryerson School of Journalism. It's now called Toronto Metropolitan University. I was thinking a little bit of what I wanted to do with my life. Since dropping out, I was sort of piecing together this precarious living as a freelance writer, which as any freelancer knows is uh, the real harrowing way to, to make a living. And I had been doing some retail work as well, but that wasn't really how I wanted to be spending my days. And so I, I mean, the most obvious answer, I guess, is that I was uh, looking for a way to make money, but there was also a part of me, I think, that wanted to do something different. Um, not necessarily something that would make for a good book, but I, I think something that was off the beaten path, something that would maybe make a good story. And um, so I was flipping through the back of Now Magazine, which was the alternative news weekly in Toronto at the time. And I was very familiar with like the sex work classifieds in the back. And so I just flipped through them. I, th I think I was, was interested in the massage parlor business because A, there were a lot of ads for parlors. Um, and because dancing and escorting sounded a little bit overwhelming to me at the time. Um, and I remember there was this one ad where it had, it just had an email. It just said like hiring girls, no, no experience necessary, training provided send us an email. And I was like, you know what, that feels safe. Like, you know, no, no pressure. If it's weird, I don't have to go through with it. So, so I sent out an email and they invited me to come down for an interview and, and same kind of thing. I said, you know, if this feels weird, I, I don't have to go through with it. Mm -hmm. um, but I did. And yeah, I guess it was intriguing enough that I wanted to, to stick with it. So that's sort of how that began back in, um, I guess it would have been 2011 or so. Okay. And did you tell your family? Did you tell friends? No, not, not at all. So um, in Toronto, I, I had moved here for school and most of my family is based on the West Coast. So I was not interacting with them on a daily basis. I was not talking to them very much. Um, so it was, it was sort of easy not to bring that up. In fact, I, I never really had a relationship with them where I like shared a lot about my personal life anyway. So I think the, I mean, at first, a lot of girls, they were telling me that sort of the easiest lie is that you work in, in a restaurant or in a bar or something, right? Because hospitality hours sort of line up with massage parlor hours. And it might make sense why you were getting all dolled up to go out to some location and, and get home late. So I think for a while, I said that I said, you know, I'm just waiting tables or something. Mm -hmm. Same thing with sort of friends outside the the sex industry. I didn't really share that either. It was, you know, it was a pretty isolating existence. Um, I do know lots of sex workers now that are much more open with their friends and family, and that's part of their life. They're comfortable sharing. But um, whether that's a reflection of, of a culture shifting now a little bit or just the circles they travel in, I'm not sure. But I certainly did not feel comfortable sharing that with people I didn't feel comfortable answering questions um and I was starting to get used to the work too so it just felt like like too much to also be sharing that with the world at the time so no what really surprised you about 
working like, you know, the first few weeks or the first day uh, and, and what misconceptions do you feel changed? That's a great question too. I mean, I, th I think my first weeks were probably a bit of a blur. Um, what I do remember appreciating was just that the, the people that I was working with, the girls that I was working with um, were very kind and very supportive and if I look back on that with sort of a different lens now, I think it's because it is such an insular field. Like there's no regulation. Um, there's no leverage in terms of like workplace um, safety or policy. So we are sort of all we have, right? Um, so there was a lot of early support from some of my coworkers, you know, like giving me tips about how to survive in the industry and, and um, how to maximize my my earnings and and even you know small things too like where to get discounts on hair extensions and stuff like that it almost felt like um like a sibling like relationship which was something that I wasn't used to and I, I do remember appreciating that and that was really lovely and as far as the job itself went um I think another thing that surprised me was just how kind of normal most people are that come through the doors right like like a lot of people, I'd sort of been socialized um, by reading literature or, or, or watching, you know, media to to think that clients that are coming to massage parlors or or hiring um, sex workers, you know, they're they're people that are like forced to pay for sex because there's something wrong with them, that they're you know aggressive, that they're um, sociopathic or something like that and and you know it's like any customer service business there's quite a quite a gamut of personalities but many people are are just regular folks that um you know they want some level of companionship they want some excitement some relief from you know the the, mund the mundane existence of their work day um so yeah yeah I would say those were the the two most surprising things that that I immediately reflected on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you feel in any way that it was fulfilling something in you? Did you feel broken to be choosing this? No, definitely not. Like that's not, that's not the, the lens I was looking through the work as it, I mean, it really did feel quite simplistic to me in the sense that I just needed money. I just needed a job. And that was kind of why all of us were there. I did struggle a little bit, I think with some isolation and some shame, but it had to do more with how I thought society would perceive me if I were to be public about that kind of work. Right. You know, I just knew the questions would come, you know, like what kind of an upbringing did I have? Um, what kind of a sense did I have if I were to be doing this work? And, you know, like, do I have a drug problem and, and stuff along those lines? So there were times when I, I fell down that rabbit hole a little bit, just feeling like there was something shameful about that line of work, but, um, again, that was like very influenced by external factors, not anything I think I truly felt about myself. Oh, that's good. And, and those factors are huge on women. You know, mm -hmm. there's a, I think it's a Netflix show called Hung. Mm -hmm. And it's about a male prostitute. And it's, it's a very lovely show. But it, it just, uh, 
it makes his decision and everything. It just makes it all so quaint. It, and uh, I don't think it's been quaint for women at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fascinating. So, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a great show. Um, so maybe in some ways it's normalizing. You know, mm. maybe the conversation uh, is happening. We'll see. Now you're writing a book about your experiences and you are doing some research about the legislation protecting sex workers. Can you talk about that a bit? In Canada, um, we've had a pretty rocky journey when it comes to um, how sex work is legislated or, or in fact is not legislated. Yeah, it's really interesting to um, to look around the world as well and can compare how it's how it's protected and respected in different parts of the of the world as well so I, I mean I think that the fight for decriminalization is really important I think it's the biggest factor that's going to to help um, in terms of like safety in terms of respect in terms of elevating this into really a, a career right that that some people love and some people want to be in on a long-term basis. And it's the only thing that's going to afford us what almost every other line of work is afforded. And that's things like regulation, like workplace protections, um, you know, things like unions and access to uh, health benefits and, and things like that. So um, yeah, and obviously a big argument against that is that, you know, it's a job that harms women. It's a job that, um, leads to higher rates of human trafficking. But when we look at other parts of the world, uh, like New Zealand, for example, we see the opposite because elevating that job out of the underground, which is where it, it currently subsides in most of the world, it actually encourages people to to engage in less criminal activity around it, right? So in, in effect, we've actually seen um, numbers of, of trafficking cases drop in, in countries like New Zealand. So uh, my hope is that we can get some more like that here as well. You know, it's an ongoing battle and I'm, I'm sort of keeping abreast of it as best I can, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's silly to me that it's been going on this long and it's silly that there are so many people in power who want to keep this job essentially pushed underground where it's harming the safety of, of all the folks who, you know, be they clients, be they workers, you know, who, who see this as their livelihood. Right. And so that's surprising New Zealand. I would have said somewhere in Europe, but. Europe is a good example too. Um, I think I was just thinking about New Zealand because I was talking about it recently with, with someone else, but um, there are definitely parts of Europe that have done an, an excellent job of regulating as well. Okay. Yeah. I always think of, you know, Amsterdam and the red light district and mm -hmm. just because they do have that history, but in many ways, I feel like that when it does become decriminalized, that maybe our shift in uh, the way that we look at women and sexuality will change as well. I feel like Esther Perel, one of my gurus, I love her. Uh, she says that, you know, we're so consumed by sex. It's almost like we just think about it so much, but that there's at the same time, there's so much repression and um, unspoken conversations, uncomfortable conversations. And that uh, we just have to get over ourselves. <laughs> so do you think that the two are linked, that the female sexuality and that our, our views of women and sexuality? Yeah, that's a really good point. 
And truthfully, I don't really know what the key is to that. I think there is always sort of a sector of of people who do view sexuality in that way, you know, as something that's like not supposed to be spoken about publicly um, and, and just have very rigid values about it. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not concerned about people's personal views about their sexuality, but I, you know, it, it does bother me when they push it onto other people, such as sex workers, for example. Um, I mean, that's certainly my hope. I, I do think with the advent of the internet, that's given um, a lot of opportunity for women and men to share their own stories about their sexuality, about, you know, whether that means being a sex worker or not. Um, you know, and it's just really helped sort of elevate and amplify a lot of those voices. And honestly, I think that's the key to people understanding and and sort of just respecting that, that sexuality, right? Because when we when we listen to people's stories, it helps us understand the world in a better way. Absolutely. Yeah. I When I was telling my father and my stepmother about my book on female sexuality, her first comment was, are you going to have a chapter on decency? Oh my God. <laughs> God love her. God love her. Sweet. Yeah. But therein lies the rub, right? Like hmm. that, the minute we talk about sex, that there is a moral imperative that's tied into it. And it's- absolutely. It's exhausting because what any one person does in in their home or out could even be outside their home, but that it's there's always such that morality card attached to it. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Finland because uh you know they've they've never it's not a secular society. They're they're not religious, and that women have been able to be sexual without it being tied to morality is sounds just like you know another planet you know because mm -hmm. every time you say the word sex there's just thousands of tiny little ghosts <laughs> all around and it's like it's so exhausting it's just like here we go again like yeah it, it's you know like what one person does with their life is it is not the the yardstick for another person and um it, it does get exhausting having that conversation yeah yeah that's such a fascinating image of the little the little like sex and morality ghosts like just popping up in the back there but yeah absolutely and, and of course this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon but just the idea of morality you know being tied to desirability or respectability is absolutely exhausting to navigate and it feels so entrenched sometimes um this is really interesting too is that within sex trade I, I feel like there almost is a little bit of a hierarchy about morality and it sort of has to do with I guess like the sort of your sexual output versus the money you earn from it so a lot mm -hmm. of people think of strippers as being like um sort of the top of this hierarchy because it is in fact possible to make a living as a stripper while being touched very minimally, right? If you're if you're dancing on stage, um, you you could be making a lot of money without engaging like too much. I'm using air quotes when I say too much because um, it's not something I, <laughs> I subscribe to <laughs> too much sexually. Yeah. Um, well, certainly, I know a lot of dancers who who offer other services as well, but that's sort of traditionally, I think, how it's been viewed. And then there's 
maybe like cam girls or massage parlor attendants fall somewhere in the middle of this hierarchy because, um, you know, it, it is possible to make a living as well. Um, again, without engaging in, in like intercourse, for example. And then at the bottom of the hierarchy are sort of like what we call the full service massage parlor attendants or sex workers. And those are the people that, um, you know, that's the main service that they offer. They offer sexual companionship. And that was really interesting to see too, because I'm like, here we are in this job and it's, or in this industry, and it's literally all about sexuality and these weird patriarchal lessons we've learned about like giving it up too easily or, or giving it up too frequently. Like they're still kind of entrenched, even in this business that is mostly dominated by women. Um, so I found that really fascinating. And I, I, I think there's definitely a bit of a shift happening with that. I think there's sort of enough um, opportunities now for all kinds of sex work, as I said, to share their stories. And that's sort of helping like people understand the motivations behind all of, all of these stories. But mm -hmm. yeah, hard to get away from, right? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, I recently... Um... Facebooked a female bully from high school. And um, I feel like, did you feel any of that in the industry? You, you, you mentioned them being very supportive, but was there also um, a little bit of a cattiness about the women at all? Yeah, that, that definitely happens as well. I, I think like any job where you're sort of stuck with people in pretty close quarters, sometimes for extremely long periods at a time, you know, like up to, to 12 or 15 hours, um, which is the length of a double shift in a parlor typically. Um, and especially in that kind of pressure cooker environment where there are like limited resources for everybody, right? That can definitely spark some mm. agreements and some cat fights, sometimes uh, physical. <laughs> but I, I don't, I feel like they also subside quite quickly. Um, but again, it's such a funny insular world because because it's not regulated because it's so underground like yeah there's there's not the same level sometimes of rules that you might see if you for example worked in an office or even you know like a store like walmart so um it is kind of like stepping into this strange bubble where people you can call your boss a bitch and like you know they might get mad at you but they're not going to fire you like um so yeah that happens but i, I think there's lots of jobs that have that same pressure cooker environment and it kind of stokes that same dynamic. Like I've heard the same thing about tree planting, for example, or like, you know, certain kind of bar and restaurant environments. Oh, absolutely. If you read Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, that's, there was everything in there. Uh, it was misogynistic. It was, it was raw. It was mean. There was lots of drugs and sex. You betcha. Um, so for you, uh, did you, did your job, it was five years, was it? About that, yeah. Did what you offered change? Like you were providing happy endings, but did you start to change that at any point in your job? Um, I think probably I operated within the same system that most people operated in, which is kind of like, um, a hand job is a happy ending is like generally guaranteed with a session, but you know, you, you might be willing to consider other things on a case by case basis. Um, that's sort of how I prefer to work because 
um, you know, I liked to have the control over sort of choosing which clients I, I provided certain services to or spent more time with. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that my services changed dramatically over the course of that five years, but there's sort of with some flexibility within that. Okay. Okay. And do you sign a contract? Uh, no, not that, not that I've ever signed. Definitely not. No. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, <laughs> I guess be- that's what you're, you're maybe, it, maybe after the book comes out, there will be some kind of contract. I would love that. I do remember asking a, a parlor owner one time, um, one, one phenomenon about working in a parlor is that you can get fined for all kinds of random things, like for coming in late to work for, I don't know, for cutting somebody's session short for, not folding laundry, um, things like that. I remember asking one time, like, is there a way we could have sort of a list of all these fines so that we could refer to them and there'd be like a consistent way to enforce them? Um, And that would typically be something you might see in a contract. But of course, the answer to that was no. So (laughs) (laughs) arbitrarily made up on the spot. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And uh, I guess to that, did you have regulars then? So if you felt like someone was unsavory or you just didn't want to work with them, was that within your rights? Well, I mean, it's a bit of a gray area. Like um, I certainly did have some regulars, especially after working in the business for, for that long time. But I mean, walk-ins also make up a good chunk of somebody's income typically. Um, one of the problems about not having a regulated workplace is that sometimes you don't have a choice over who you see, right? Clients come in, uh, if they don't have an appointment, everybody goes to say hello and they choose somebody and you may not have a choice whether you wanna go in or not. Like there's there's a little bit of flexibility, especially on a day when like there may not be a manager around, there may not be an owner around. You might be like, oh, you know what? I do not feel comfortable with that client. I've seen him before or you know, he requested something that I, I don't feel comfortable um, indulging in. Um, but there are other times when, you know, an owner might be on site and they might not listen to you. So it also depends a lot on who you work for. Um, I certainly had some frustrating circumstances when I did not feel safe with somebody or did not feel inclined to see somebody. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really... I didn't really have an option. I kind of had to to muscle through it. So that is, I think, one of the perks that we would see if, in fact, we um, regulated the business more thoroughly, right, is that people would be able to sort of choose the services they provide and choose who they see. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel unsafe then? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I can't say it happened a lot. But again, it, you know, it, sometimes it feels like the Wild West in there, right? And many times it's also just like five girls hanging out in a, in a walk-up. There's, there's no security. Um, again, it goes back to your earlier question. Like really we are kind of all we have working together in that space. So, uh, yeah, yeah. There are plenty of times when I felt unsafe, but that's kind of just the business. Right. You muddled through, as you said, wow. Yeah. I had here, if the older Lana could tell the younger Lana some advice about the business and the time you spent on the job, what would she say? Oh, that's a good question. And something that I actually think about a lot is that I wish I had the marketing savvy that I now have and the <laughs> insight that I've gained with age and like 
the the mindset that I had when I was younger. I <laughs> I'm certainly not looking to get into the business anytime soon, but sometimes I think about amazing ways to like bring clients in. You know, we would always have like slow periods at the parlor, and we'd all be brainstorming. Um, you know, sometimes we would do things like create Twitter accounts under our stage names, and we would kind of use that as a as a promotion platform. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think about that all the all the time now. But you know, the the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, yeah. I, I guess like the other thing I would maybe just um, want a younger massage parlor attendant to to understand it's not necessarily a specific piece of advice, but more just a level of like kindness. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult job in some ways, not necessarily because of the job itself, but I mean, it really is like a customer service job on steroids. Yeah. Um, if you are in that business, there's a good chance you might find yourself a little bit isolated from, from people on the outside. Um, it is also, uh, or can be a very precarious way to earn a living. I mean, you could make several hundred dollars a shift. You could make zero dollars a shift. Um, and, you know, it's, it is. It's, it's a hard scrabble way to make a living. And there's certainly a lot of external structures that make it harder. So I would want to just, you know, extend some kindness and some respect to um, to my younger self, I think. That's the main thing. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when I think about the openness that's happening now with especially gender Z who call themselves the most gender fluid um, mm -hmm. is that there's um, a, a different, let's hope the stigma is taken out of it, you know, and that, as you said, the discussion will happen um, and that the safety as, as, as a result will be the result mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. Absolutely. And then why did you leave? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people who work in hospitality or customer service roles, uh, you know, they sort of hit a point maybe in their late 20s, sometimes later, um, you know, or, or just after a certain span of time working in that business and they start to get burnt out, right? You you have to be on personality-wise all the time. Um, it's a lot of late nights. Um, and I said, sometimes a precarious um precarious way of earning money too and I think all those things just sort of built up um I did in fact end up going back to finish my degree so there was a time where I was close to completing that and I just felt like there were other things I wanted to do with myself there are other things and, and with my life I just wanted to you know explore different creative opportunities I wanted to be able to use my brain in a slightly different way. And it just felt kind of like the right time for me. So um, yeah, so after five, six years, um, I got out. I did stay a little bit involved with the industry because I've, I've been volunteering with Maggie's for quite some time. It's a great organization that um, supports sex workers in a number of different ways. Um, so it's kind of fun to still still see the, the issues that are um, not only plaguing the industry, but also see how much it's changed for the, for the better too. So, so yeah. Right. Right. So there, there could be hope. The last question, how did this experience frame your current perspective on your own sexuality and, and personal relationships? You think that is a wonderful question. And it's so, 
it's so hard to think about it because I, I guess I have nothing else to compare it to, right? I have no idea what like 22 year old Lana might have been like without that experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I have no idea what part sex work would have played in that development either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but certainly I think, I think sort of seeing the breadth of people and desires and just the diversity of people's sexualities and sexual needs during like such a condensed time frame um, has really just made me feel more open about relationships and about people and just given me a more of a tolerance than I probably would have had otherwise for the kinds of things that people are into and the kinds of ways that people you know connect with their own sexuality so I I think probably the biggest thing is that it's just made me very very non-judgmental about you know the the things people bring to to their sex lives to their to their real lives you know to their their intimate relationships and also just their their romantic relationships right people are so different and it's so fascinating and especially with your you know with a regular you know seeing them were a lot of people married or was this an extra thing or was this was it mostly lonely? Like what kind of sort of armchair psychology did you pull out of this? Well, that's a good question too. I mean, and that's the thing, like there's such a, such a spectrum of people that come in there and the needs that they have. There certainly are some people who are married and uh, even within that, there's a whole spectrum of why people are there when they're married. Like there are some people who absolutely adore their partners and, you know, would, would die for them and are, are excellent partners outside the parlor. They are supportive. They are, um, they're loyal, which is not the same as being faithful in my opinion. Um, but you know, they recognize that there is maybe a little something extra that they need in their life and coming to see a sex worker, in fact, makes them a better partner on the outside, right? Cause they're not resentful. They're not thinking about that all the time. They're able then to sort of be the best person they can for their partner and then sure there are also your garden variety entitled people who just want more of a variety or find it to like relating or salacious to be cheating on a partner with a sex worker I mean I can't say I really put too much judgment on that either because you know people are are who they are certainly um and then absolutely there's other people that maybe you know maybe they struggle with intimate relationships and maybe they want to gain some practice in a, a safer setting. Maybe they want to ask some questions or they just want to feel some level of connection um, at that time. And and certainly a lot of other single people who it's more just a matter of convenience, perhaps, you know, maybe they travel a lot. Maybe mm-hmm. they have a very demanding job and same with them. They also create, create this sense of connection and intimacy. And this is, you know, a safe and straightforward in a professional environment to find that in right right it's it's very transactional i remember even um going to the sex club oasis where it's the rules there seem uh a lot more equal and progressive than the outside world you know you can't touch someone if uh they don't give you permission Mm. at what bar is that a rule you know it's supposed to be a rule but 
Yeah. I love the thing that um, Oasis does with the armband colors as well, right? So if you're wearing a certain color, you are not comfortable being approached. If you are wearing a different color, you know, you are maybe open to like some kind of play negotiation. I think that's amazing. I wish bars had that too. Like oh. how many times have you gone to a bar and just wanted to like sit there and enjoy a drink and not be harassed? <laughs> like, <laughs> come on, that, that's amazing. Let's put that everywhere. Let's put that in Walmart. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't talk to me, bands. <laughs> I know what I need from from the makeup aisle. Please do not bother me while I am browsing in Walmart. Thank you. Yeah, no, and and it's it's funny that uh, going there, I just felt like why why can't we have those rules respected outside of this this institution? I I just think it's uh, it's just bizarre that. Um, we have to keep reminding people that the that this is respectful. This is kindness. Yeah. 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 It also, to me, it also goes back to the question about um, just like why we have these sort of strict moral codes and why there is this um, this hate or this intolerance for the the business of sex work. And I think a lot of it has to do um, with you know some men and possibly some women just sort of thinking that sex is something that people are owed right if they only do the right things if you only buy dinner or say the right things or are you know a nice enough person that you deserve that and i think that is why some people are uncomfortable with the idea of sex being a pay service because mm -hmm. they're like well no that's what no that is not you can't capitalize on that that's not a business item that is a thing that i should get for free if i just do the right things and so it's it's very like threatening to them to think that women and men will sometimes capitalize on them. Right. Right. I think there was a sex in the city episode where um, someone left a few thousand dollars on Carrie's bedside table. And she's just like, oh, there was again, she, <laughs> she, she went to breakfast the next morning wondering, should I keep it girls? And the and of course, Samantha was like, just think that as a, as a tip. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. But there was just, a, again, this is, you know, not that long ago, but it was like, I don't know. Can I, can I see myself as that? Um, and there, there's just, again, the morality thing keeps creeping in all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's very hard to shake that. Absolutely. Well, Anna. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you you think about or you want to get out there? That's a lovely question. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about this a lot as I'm writing my book because one thing I'm sort of trying to do is compare working in massage parlors to other forms of labor. Right. And I would just encourage people to think about like the humans behind various jobs. And that, you know, that is everything from like the person who's making your burrito to the person that might be handling your bank transactions, right? Like everybody doing a form of labor is a human with a story. Yeah. And sometimes the comparison I draw is like, I think nursing is a really gross, visceral job. Like I, I can't imagine, you know, lifting people's bedpans and cleaning up people's open wounds like that sounds really disgusting to me but I don't look at nurses and think they're disgusting humans for doing that work right I think oh wonderful I'm so glad there are people who want to be nurses so I don't have to do it and probably I'll need a nurse to do that to me someday <laughs> yeah 
you know, and I wish that sex workers were sort of afforded that same level of respect, right? You don't have to want to be a sex worker. I'm not saying that if you support sex work, that means you have to do it or you have to condone your partner seeing one yeah. or anything like that. I, I just want people to understand that everybody who is a sex worker is, is a legitimate worker and, you know, is probably a smart, resourceful, creative person who's, who's essentially like a self-employed business person. And, you know, I, I think we all deserve that level of respect and I hope that we get there at some point. Well, and I think you're just the person to be writing this book because I think you're going to change a lot of people's perception because you are so smart, you know? Well, thank you. I try. (laughs) You do try. And as someone who's writing about sex that I always come back to, you know, just because someone seeks pleasure and they want it, they want to be desirable. It doesn't mean that A, they don't pay their taxes. B, they don't love their family and the children. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not going to all of a sudden become heathens and wild and run out in the street naked. (laughs) Like like, there is self-control, you know, this is just one aspect of someone's life. This is not, not who you are in, in every other avenue. So it's, it's, again, it's a piece of labor, mm-hmm. but I really don't think in many ways that we've matured yet. I think North America has such a long ways to go mm-hmm. to take the stigma out of it, to take the morality out of it and to accept mm-hmm. everyone just has to accept other people. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, I wrote an op-ed last year about sex work unions. And one of the comments in it was like, oh, that's too much. That just sounds crazy. This is Canada. Like we can't handle that craziness here or something. So (laughs) I agree with you. (laughs) North America has, has its work cut out for it in terms of that. But I also am hopeful that it's sort of happening slowly and steadily. Yeah, me too. Well, Anna, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This has been lovely. Stay tuned for next week's show when I speak to Trina Orchard, anthropologist, author, activist, who also teaches at Western University in London, Ontario. Trina's new book, Sticky, Sexy, Sad, Swipe Culture and the Darker Side of Dating Apps, is coming out next year. And I get into a really interesting conversation about the online dating world. The Sexy Times podcast is copyright by Melanie Chambers. For questions and comments, contact Melanie at melanie.writing at gmail.com. Production assistance provided by Hugh Elliott.